0: Welcome to China in Context, I'm Duncan Bartlett. To loyal members of the Communist Party, China is a mighty ship steered by a trusted captain towards a glorious destination known as National Rejuvenation. At the party's recent Congress meeting, held in Beijing, Xi Jinping reassured the faithful that he will remain at the helm of the vessel, even though he warned that high winds choppy waters and even dangerous storms lie on the journey ahead. Such rhetoric is designed to evoke memories of brave emperors and mythical adventurers. And even though Mr. Xi describes himself as a 21st century Marxist, he likes to be connected with a legacy which stretches back centuries. I'm delighted to say that we're joined on the podcast today by someone who's ideally placed to give us the long view on China's situation. Rana Mitter is Professor of the History and Politics of Modern China at the University of Oxford, and he's the author, most recently, of China's Good War, how World War II is shaping a new nationalism. Rana, welcome to China in Context. Duncan, very good to be here. Now, Xi Jinping began his speech to the 20th Party Congress in Beijing by hailing the party's achievements over the past five years, yet five years marks just a mere blink of an eye in terms of history. What stood out to you as significant?
1: Well, I think in terms of the last five years or so, Duncan, one of the elements of the speech that she gave, which perhaps was underplayed in some of the coverage, was not so much about the rise of China, the new nationalism, but actually quite a domestic issue. And that's anti-corruption. In other words, one of the ways in which I thought that she was using that speech to lay out legitimacy for himself and for his political project was essentially by telling that wider listening public in China, telling that audience that, look, we knew there were a lot of problems, particularly with corruption in the period before I came along, and I've been really cracking down on that hard. Now, whether or not that's literally true in every case is another matter. But it's certainly, I think, the case that there's a popular perception in China that overall, the hardline tactics that Xi Jinping has used, quite often against his own political enemies, have actually reduced a great deal of the corruption that was running rampant in the 2000s when money was flowing free. But in terms of the wider historical context, I think it's also visible that Xi Jinping was placing himself very much in... Well, let's call it a pantheon. In other words, the idea that actually there is a succession of leaders who, okay, they're not sacred figures in the religious sense, but certainly they're figures with immense standing in the history of the Chinese Revolution. Chairman Mao, the founder of the revolution and the PRC, the People's Republic of China, back in 1949. Deng Xiaoping, the figure who essentially turned China into the economic powerhouse that it's become in the period of the of the 1970s through allowing much more marketization of the economy, and now Xi Jinping putting himself forward as the person who's going to undertake the great rejuvenation of China, a phrase which you hear over and over again. So I thought they were both quite specific things about the last five years, and there were some tones of a much longer historical sweep. Well, that's
0: very interesting that you mentioned rejuvenation, Rana, because that was definitely a central theme of the event. But as you know, none of us are getting any younger. Xi Jinping is 68 years old, and I noticed that sitting near him was one of the oldest people in the world, Song Ping. He's 105
1: years old. What was his role at the event? 105 years old and going strong, I suspect, Um, you know, this is, as you say, not only one of the oldest people in the world, but one of the very last, if not the last living link with the revolutionary years, that period when essentially the Chinese Communist Party moved from its foundation in 1921 to a small study group or set of study groups and underground revolutionaries running around in Beijing and Shanghai, a few of the other major cities of China, very, very much underground, to what they are today, which is of course this massive machine, you might almost say, that's there to rule China. And it's a reminder, Song Ping's presence is a reminder to the viewing television public, that there is this historical continuity, in other words, the party that was founded on the basis of wanting to overturn the existing, as they would see it, feudal backwards situation of China back in the 1910s and 20s, has a direct line of descendants to the Chinese Communist Party of the 2020s, where certainly the existing order is not something that Xi Jinping would want to overturn in any sense, but where Nonetheless, new revolutions in technology and economic change are still using the party as a sort of central element of keeping China steady in the face of buffeting winds from around the world, whether it's the Ukraine war or whether it's the pressure from the United States or a whole variety of other geopolitical issues. So that historical element is important to the party in terms of telling its own story of legitimacy and perhaps above all, tying it to the really key historical event, the Long March of the 1930s. uh, One of those last living memories that connects to that period.
0: Let's talk about a former Chinese leader, Hu Jintao. He attended the General Assembly in 2022, but there appears to have been a power struggle between Xi Jinping and Hu Jintao. We certainly saw television pictures of Hu Jintao leaving the meeting, being led out of the meeting, actually. How do you interpret that situation?
1: In the absence of other evidence, Duncan, I would go for a rather low-key interpretation, which is essentially that Hu Jintao, for whatever reason, wasn't quite on top of things and was led out before you know, he felt ill or, or something else happened. The reason I say that is this, a lot of people have put forward this idea, You know, for all we know, it might be true, but there's no the real evidence that I've seen that this was part of a, an orchestrated move to show, you know, in front of the television audience, the whole of China, that Xi Jinping's power was absolute and even the previous leader could be unceremoniously bundled off stage. The problem with that interpretation is that pretty much immediately afterwards, every scrap of that coverage was cut out of social media in China. They couldn't stop it appearing on foreign media because, of course, the foreign press had been allowed into the Great Hall of the People by that stage. And, of course, uh, CNN, BBC and so forth um, had their footage. They sent it back and they obviously weren't going to retract it. But a situation where only foreigners... to replay that moment and spend endless hours poring over it, wondering what's going on, whereas the domestic Chinese audience, who presumably would have been the the key audience for such an event, don't get to see it at all, doesn't seem to me quite to add up. So I would go on this with the perhaps less glamorous, but perhaps in the absence of evidence, more useful interpretation that it uh, was a slip up in a highly choreographed event and not some huge political gesture in its own right.
0: Well, thank you, Rana. Some of the other guests on our podcast have uh, given some very colourful interpretations of that event.
1: I'd say, Duncan, they might be right. I mean, as I say, I don't have proof in my direction. It's just that my tendency tends to be, when I don't actually have evidence, to say it's probably the least exciting explanation. If something else comes out that shows that actually something else is going on, well, I'd I'd be the first one in the queue to hear it. Well, let's talk
0: a little bit about Hugh Jintao in terms of history because diplomats tend to look back quite nostalgically and positively to the days of Hugh Jintao, because at that point there seemed little chance of a clash between China and the West. We can say, can't we, that today's mood seems more confrontational. What's your view looking ahead? Do you think we're heading towards a, a serious clash Are Chinese Navy vessels going to sail across the sea to America and threaten the coastline of California?
1: Um, No, (laughs) I think it's very (laughs) unlikely that Chinese naval vessels are going to sail across the Pacific and threaten the coast of California. I I don't think that will happen. what we are seeing, I think you're right, though, is a sense that China is becoming much more confrontational in an area which it wishes to declare essentially part of its own zone of control. And that's you know large parts of the Western Pacific, particularly the maritime areas, South China Sea being perhaps the best known example, but also aspects of the East China Sea and uh, beyond. I wouldn't say, by the way, that, um, as your question puts it, Duncan, that it's just a flip between the period when Hu Jintao was in charge and the period when Xi Jinping came to power. I think we now, in retrospect, can see that the last years of Hu Jintao's period in power, particularly post- the great financial crisis of 2008 did mark a period of greater boldness and more willingness to take risks on the part even of the Chinese leadership then, even before she had come to power. So you might say that she expresses that shift in um, boldness and willingness to take risks, but I think he wasn't the sole inventor of it but looking forward as you've said you know what what comes next well yes i think the idea that china is not going to step back from the idea that it should be the dominant power in the asia pacific region i think it has that conviction very strongly it's not going to step back from it but there are a variety of other concerns that also come to mind on all sides but certainly in beijing one is the fact that beijing realizes that its domestic economy continues to be underperforming, partly because of the famous zero COVID policy, also because there are a whole variety of shifts, including a lot of countries refusing to allow, say, full access to technology to Chinese purchases. The United States in particular has recently just passed the so-called CHIPS Act, which uh, is going to make it much harder for China to obtain high-level semiconductor technology. Now, all of these things actually it seems to me, don't point in the direction, or at least don't naturally point in the direction of a greater military confrontation. They point towards greater economic competition. I think that's actually very, very likely to be in the future. So we there in the future. So we can see, for instance, I think China and the West competing with each other. We already see it in terms of creating trade blocks and trade networks in the region, something like the CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, originally called the TPP. Donald Trump pulled out in 2017. Now, actually, there's quite a lot of enthusiasm from uh, liberal allies in the um, and the Asia Pacific, such as Japan, South Korea, the UK, quite possibly later this year, to use it as a framework for a particular version of high standard liberal trade, but China wants in. China's knocking on the door, is interested in actually getting into this particular organisation. So debates around those sorts of issues and what happens to the most economically vibrant region in the world for now, East Asia, I think are going to be much more at the heart of those discussions about competition than maybe the more immediately eye-catching military elements. Although I should add, those are very much going to be present as well.
0: After the Congress, there was a meeting in Bali of the G20. And actually, before the big meeting started, there was a bilateral meeting between President Joe Biden and Xi Jinping. It was quite a long one as well. Now, you're a historian. Do you think that event will go down in history?
1: Um I don't know that this particular event is going to go down in history in quite the way that let's say Reagan and Gorbachev meeting in Reykjavik in I think 1986 has done, you know, which is in retrospect look, looked on as a moment when the first cold war, or to treat this one as a second one, some people do, uh, when the, the the first cold war began to, to melt, to thaw. I think this is an important moment in Bali, don't get me wrong. I think the fact that the tone was courteous, polite, and fairly cooperative on both sides on the US side and the chinese side and that the meeting was three hours, which is substantial for you know even the president of the US and the president of China you know biggest players in the world in some ways that that's a long meeting. However, I don't think we yet see a significant change in the direction of travel in either case, by which I mean I think that China is still moving towards a securitized vision of its economic and political future in which openness is probably given second or third place compared to making sure that the ruling party's priorities are kept safe. And in the case of the United States, I wouldn't see, for instance, a reversal of things such as the Chips Act, uh, which essentially has put a real break on some aspects of China's development in terms of technology. So I think it's a healthy sign that there were good long meetings. It's very important the channels of dialogue continue to be opened up. But I don't yet see this as a significant shift in overall policy direction from either the American or the Chinese side at this moment.
0: Well, thank you, Rana, for that deep insight into China's role in the world. That was Rana Mitter, Professor of the History and Politics of Modern China at the University of Oxford. His new book, China's Good War, Our World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism, is published by Belknap Press. This podcast is made by the SOAS China Institute, and you can find out more about our courses and research at our website, soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China
1: in Context podcast team.